They called us monsters, so monsters we became. We are Monsters Out of the Closet. I'm Nicole. I'm Dara. And I'm Shreya. The slit-mouthed woman. Polybius. Sewer alligators. Hookman. The call coming from inside the house. Some of these stories define a community or a cultural moment. While they fall into a category between rumor and myth, these urban legends are always told in hushed tones, just in case. Changelings are the stuff of legend, mysterious beings who carry away human children and take their place. What terrifies us is not only that children may be snatched away without our knowing, but that we may get back something else. In a half-finished oral report on the phenomenon of Autumn's children, a curious student investigates a spate of missing children who reappear but are forever changed. This piece features Kiki Gunglovsky as the narrator and Tara Rangan as the reporter. My report from Mr. Brar's local history unit. Take one. They're called Autumn's Children. A strange name. One that leads to people thinking that the danger is past when the leaves have fallen. Not so. It is true that as the nights get longer, the strolls that lead to the missing posters are more common, but a child can go walking any time of the year. Their name has more to do with the fact that it is seen as a falling, like an angel into an adulthood, like a nasty little trip. Okay, a uh, general summary. The warning signs are subtle, although more education around spotting the early signs has had mixed success. They say it starts with the skin. It starts to look worn, like paper. Then the eyes sink and age, even as the rest of them seems frozen. Eventually, they will go for a walk, often right as the sun sets, and if they manage to make it to the woods, they will never be heard from again. The key there is heard, because Autumn's children continue to be seen years after they leave. They appear in old bedrooms, in classes, soundless and hollow, just staring. If they were violent, they would perhaps be less terrifying. Then the threat would be a clear one, something to raise up arms against. But they do nothing but stare. Nothing but haunt. They are impossibly strong, only moving when they want to and resisting most attempts to make them do otherwise. They do not age in any traditional way. Indeed, Rebecca Mayer was visited by her brother when she was 92, and he had gone walking when she was hardly 16. He was two years her junior, but the brother she saw couldn't have been more than 18. The only difference were his hands, gnarled like twigs. She was insistent on 
that particular detail. Rebecca died shortly after, and no one could ever agree on what was the cause and what was the effect. Only that they were somehow related. <laughs> How could they not be? Alright, portrayals by media, government, and academia. Children of the Corn was their first depiction in modern popular media. Some scholars argue that the quietest of Shakespeare's fairies were supposed to be Autumn's children, but there's no way of knowing for sure. Although certainly with names like Mustard Seed and Cobweb, one does wonder. They have often been compared to changelings as well, perhaps inspiring the myth. But the first modern telling, the first horror story, was Children of the Corn. Families who had lost a child to the woods called it callous, cruel, and other much meaner things. But people still turned out of the theaters in droves, sparking the rise of a new horror subgenre that still hung strong today. The walking silenced. It's not hard to understand how some people mistake them for zombies, but they do have pulses, seem to breathe, and have never shown any interest in the taste of human flesh. Their intelligence is more up for debate, but if someone does try to hurt them, they will be gone by the next morning without fail. During the Cold War, when Soviet suspicion and satanic panic both peaked, many of Autumn's children were captured in an attempt to rid the U.S. of them. Some in power went so far as to accuse them of being weapons of psychological warfare. But no matter how much steel and security measures they buried those they'd captured under, the Autumn's children were always gone by the next morning. Other, less savory research has been rumored in the last few years. Experiments on kids showing early symptoms. Ones who haven't quite gotten around to leaving just yet. Terrible, unethical things. None of these kids have returned home, so the rumors say. Whether that's because the experiments led to their deaths, they finished their transformations and vanished, like Autumn's children do, or they are simply still there, no one is certain. Personally, I've been obsessed with them ever since I was a little kid. Mom's brother went walking. She never saw him again. It's not something she talks about, but I was raised in the same small town she grew up in. It wasn't too hard to find people willing to fill me in. I think they're beautiful, honestly. There's something so very... romantic about them. Swaying like they do. Like some strange and lonely tree, alone in the wind. And their eyes... When you look at them, you can tell they're looking back. I've only ever seen two. One appeared when I was ten and stayed in front of the town library for three months. I looked her up. Her name was Sybil and she'd gone walking sometime around 1908. She had the most gorgeous dress, petticoat and all. Every time I walked by, I wanted to reach out and touch it. But by the time I'd gathered the courage, she was gone. You know what they remind me of? Those portraits folks used to do with dead children. You don't know what's wrong with a picture at first, only that it's somehow dreadful. And then you realize that these two kids are posing with their dead brother and everything makes a sudden kind of sense. Only they're not dead. No, they're alive. 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 That I know for certain. The other one I've seen, I never could figure out the name of. There's a database, see? Records of the Autumn's children, who went walking when, where, and how they've shown up since. You can report a sighting, even upload a photo if you take one. I never did. It feels somehow... 
invasive. Also, I don't think they like bright lights. I can relate to that. He was younger than you usually see, maybe as little as twelve. His swaying was faster, more like a metronome. He was still in a school uniform, I think, although the patch had been torn off. There was a discolored bit of fabric over his heart. I wanted to ask him about it so badly. Was it something he'd done himself, or something in the lead-up to his leaving? I tried to talk to him, but of course there was no answer. He just stared. Slowly shifted his eyes to meet mine. Held me there. For longer than I really want to admit. <laughs> I'm still obsessed, but... I've been more interested lately in who they were before. I've taken to people watching for hours till my eyes feel dry and brittle. I used to take notes, but lately my hands have taken to aching, especially in the evenings. That's why I switched to this. Recording makes more sense anyway. Easier. <laughs> I've never loved talking, but talking to myself is a lot easier than talking to anyone else. I don't know what I plan to do with it all. Mostly, it's just for me. I've thought about going into study about them, but so often the studies I see seem insensitive at best. They're not hurting anyone. They just want to see. They just want to understand. <laughs> uh, sorry, I, I'm not sure where that came from. I just want to understand. That's, that's what I meant to say. <laughs> I think I saw something yesterday in the forest. I thought it might be Faith, because she's been looking ill ever since she lost the baby, but her brother insists she's actually sick. I wish there was a way to find out why they sway. It is calming. I've taken to doing it while I'm recording, even. Less attention grabbing than pacing. I wonder if it's like with babies, and how they like to be rocked to sleep. rock by baby cradle will fall all of that. That's where I am now. The woods. Trying to find whoever I saw yesterday. My stepdad decided that I need a curfew, but I won't be long. I'm just so curious. I, I can't explain it. I want to know everything, see everything. Why can't that be a job? Just observing. If we had more people who stopped and watched everything for a minute or two, we'd be better off as a species for sure. I found a little path in the woods, one I've never seen before. I wonder if they always follow the same path. The ones that go walking? Like some sort of migration. I wish I knew why they did it. Boy. Mom's brother. Sybil. What do they all have in common? Was it something sinister at home? Is it a fear of growing up? Some people call going walking a coward suicide. <laughs> Hate those people. They're the cowards, making things up, not bothering to learn or ask or try to understand. Even if they all wanted to die, why call them cowards for it? It feels... <sighs> so... 
unnecessarily unkind. I've never done anything wrong. Yet people think they know. I think they get it. They don't. <laughs> they just don't. I've never been this deep in the woods before. I'm not scared, though. I used to be so scared. Of everything. Heights. Animals. The dark. I still am, although I'm getting better at pretending now. But the moon must be extra bright tonight, because I can see just fine. I can actually see more- oh. Hello. Me? You mean me? Oh, uh, I don't think I- Wait, really? Gold I never thought I could do that. See all of it. I I I should think about it. Shouldn't I think about it? I don't I don't really want to. What? Does it... You know, um... Hurt? Oh. Like that. <laughs> How will I know when... I had no idea. I have no idea how much it all weighed. It's just like you said then. Just... Think like that. And I'd get to see it? Oh, yeah. I, I can't wait. Oops. Oh, everything. Everything I ever wanted. I cannot. I can't begin to thank you. Yes, I. Yes. Yes. Thank you. It's beautiful. Everything is so beautiful. This was collected from a recorder found in the forest outside of Tuwanek, British Columbia, on January 24, 2016. The voice has been positively identified as Patricia Brown, age 16, who was first reported missing in October of 2015. No sightings of Miss Brown, alive or as one of the Autumn's children, have ever been reported.
Ghost stories aren't just for sharing around a campfire. Follow us to the bustling and bright streets of Seoul, South Korea, where if you're unlucky enough, you may be whisked away by a ghost. Guishin's of the New Moon's Eve was written by Russell Hemmel and features Kai Hudson as Christy and Christine Nguyen as Mayumi. We walk out of the subway. The first train of the day has left us in a Gundam still asleep. The last partygoers stumble back to their dormitories in the freezing haze of the morning. The pervasive smell of yakiniku reminds me I had no dinner last night. I look around at the early morning with a deep sense of disorientation. This is something Miyumi is familiar to. Not me. Never me. Normally, at 5.30 a.m., I'd be in my deepest slumber while my roommate thrives and revels. But not today. Today, we're together in the twilight hours before dawn, when everything is possible and the world doesn't watch. I look at Miyumi's cheeks, reddened by the cold breeze. It's windy, spring is coming, but nights remain chilling, and the only way to warm you up is to drink soju, gallons of it. I can't wait. Christy. Look at this. She takes my hand and points it at the Samsung Tower's glittering roof. It's imposing as always, even scarier in the crepuscular sky. What? Do you see it? Her green pupils are like cold flames. She scares me sometimes. The reflection of a Guishin's face. I try to focus, following her stare, but I can't see anything. No? That's good news. Only victims can see Guishin. It means they're not coming for you. Not yet. What about you, then? Why do you see it? Me? I was a victim once. Now I'm part of the family. Only a glint in her eyes suggests she's making fun of me. Her hair dancing on her face, an empty bottle of soju thrown away. Miyumi touches my nose and laughs, and I feel a shiver running down my spine. It was during my first year at Yonsei Uni that I heard for the first time about the infamous Guishin of Ghanem, Ghanem schools, as everybody calls them. In a hush-hush way, of course, because nobody in Seoul admitted they existed for real. Not the population of 24 million people, not the police, and certainly not the area's inhabitants themselves. There were no ghouls in Ghanem, period. You would find the Samsung Research Center headquarters ubiquitous shopping malls, a couple of streets full of fancy restaurants, and nightclubs with the best of the best of K-pop. All the rest? Just rumors to attract morbid tourist attention. Or at least, that's how my classmates and friends would respond. I knew there had to be more to the whispers and vague warnings, but my inquiries always ended up in this rather inglorious way, in irony, laughter, or denial. Maybe because I'm not one of them, I repeated to myself. But curiosity gnawed at me. I want to see what haunts in plain sight. So I asked my friend Miyumi, a Japanese girl that had lived in Seoul for most of her life. The story itself was simple. Every fourth New Moon's Eve, somebody got killed in the fancy neighborhood of Gangnam. 
At least, they were presumed dead, since they disappeared altogether from the bustling face of the city without leaving a trace. This was what Miyumi told me, in between two bottles of soju during a drunken night out. Her tone was nonchalant, describing how the souls of the murdered come back as guishin to where they've been killed, haunting the living and trying to drag them down. For eating their flesh, some people say. Or for company, Miyumi explains. They're so lonely, sad souls searching for comfort. I'm silent as I consider this. Would you like to see one? Miyumi's voice is sweet, insidious. And that's how I found myself with her now, on this frightening new moon's eve, in a freezing, almost deserted Gangnam street, waiting for a guishin to grab me and take me away. Miyumi insisted we should head back, saying that nothing interesting was going to happen to us. The Guishin weren't getting after us. No Guishin, no fun. I was disappointed to leave without seeing one, but I never had the strength to say no to her. And when she came, white and cold and naked, to sleep in my bed that morning, I didn't send her away. I guess that was what I had also wanted since the beginning. But I soon found out I had mistaken her intentions. Don't worry, Christy. I don't want anything from you. You don't? No. I only want to sleep by your side. Have some company. Keep warm. Oh. I was somehow disappointed, but also relieved. I took her close to me, and we fell asleep. Since that moment, Miyumi regularly visited me in bed, even when she was going out and getting back in the first hours of the morning. White, cold, and silent, she would slip in, putting her head on my shoulder and getting asleep immediately. In the morning, I would never find her, and only a faint scent of soju was remaining around to remind me I had not dreamt. It's New Moon's Eve again, and it's squishing night again. I'm ready. It's not dusk yet, but I'm already in Gondam, fluttering around like a crazed butterfly. If I want to see something, I'd better be there before it becomes dark. This is what I told myself in the morning, trying to play down my excitement. Maybe this time, a Guishin will show up, and I'll see its face. Miyumi has come with me. She doesn't want to leave me alone in this night. It's not safe for you, Christy Yang, if you head to Gangnam all by yourself. I laugh. Let's get some soju. We go to a small restaurant with wooden panels and iron braziers at the entrance, not far away from where we dined last time. There are only a few people sitting inside, I guess because it's still early. And yet, tonight, I feel there's something different in the air. There's an eerie calm in what I expected to be a lively tavern. Everybody is drinking in silence, raising glasses and cups in slow motion. Everybody but one, a young man that glances around like a scared rabbit. Miyumi's eyes look like cat's irises, green and round and wide open, and there's a slight smile on her face. You see that one? Her regard stops on the frightened youth that eats alone in a corner, the one I've already noticed. 
What about him? He's going to be dead. Soon. How do you know? You'll see. She drinks her soju. It occurs to me she never eats. Only drinks, bottle after bottle. And she never gets drunk, either. Will you kill him? I'm not sure why I've asked this question. This is not something you're supposed to tell to a friend, is it? But my words have their own way out of the mouth that is meant to control them. They scorch my lips and hang suspended in the air like splinters of dark light. Miyumi raises her hands like she could touch and feel their quality, caressing their roughness. No, not this one. I would if I had to, yes, to protect you. Her mouth curls in an open smile and shows something I haven't oddly ever noticed before. Feline-like white fangs, gleaming and sharp. But it won't be necessary. Why have you taken me here? Can't you imagine? No. The moment I say it, I confusedly realize the reason. This night, I'm seeing a city I didn't know, with a person I've just discovered. I'm not scared, though. I'm simply beyond fear. You told me you wanted to see Guishin in action. These people? Yes. I look outside the window that looks out on the alley. There's nobody around, even though by now it should be teeming with life. There are streetlights all around, but their red glimpses are of a ghostly quality, flickering like candles in the wind. A green mist seeps into the restaurant from the semi-closed door and through the small fissures of the wooden walls, while the temperature drops by many degrees. I shudder and brace for what is going to happen. The young guy snaps on his feet in a sudden realization that electrifies his body even before reaching his mind. Too late for him. It has been too late since he arrived here, in this place, in this city, on this new moon's eve. They get up and walk toward him, slowly and inexorably. His eyes search mine while he opens up his mouth to scream with a voice that comes out no longer. I taste his terror like sour kimchi. Miyumi takes my hand. You're safe. They won't come for you tonight. I know. Why should they, when they're going to be sated soon? The crowd has surrounded him, carnivore ants on a wriggling prey. I can see neither his table now, nor the meal of blood and flesh they're enjoying, suddenly awakened from their slumber, hands and arms that swivel around like raven's wings. Feasting relishing. Or so I imagine, because when they finally disband and get back to their seats, there's nothing left. No man, no blood, not the shreds of flesh I've pictured in my head. There's a void, like a white hole in the fabric of the universe, or a magic mirror that reflects an imaginary space. Is this the way you do it? No. She smiles. I like being alone in my feeding. Killing. Killing. Since when? Since I met you. It is dawn when we go out of the restaurant, which has reclaimed its space in the Gondam I used to know. One I will never look at with the same eyes again. Visitors come and go, 
ghouls of a different quality, unaware of what happened here in a dimension that escapes their eyes. They laugh, but their voices reach me like laments from the underworld. We take the subway and head back home without saying a word, but holding hands like little children at their first walk in the adult's precinct. At the entrance of our dormitory, I stop and look up at the crown of buildings that encircles us in a cuddling embrace. And in a moment, I see the bloated face of the restaurant's victim appearing everywhere. Now I can see his spirited eyes chasing me from the window glasses, each window a face. I see his reflection on the metallic doors. He's in my house too, on the TV screen switched off, on the computer's aluminum cover, in the mirror on the shelf. Even the yolk of my eggs grimaces at me from the frying pan. He will come for me, slowly and inexorably, in one of the hundred new moon's eves after this one. Not to punish me for having let him die, but to have somebody to keep him company. One night, yes, but not yet. Not now. And not while Miyumi is with me. For she needs me as her companion, a living being to feel alive again, a warm creature to curl against in the cold night. I take her in my arms and we lie down in bed, her face on my stomach, my mouth on her forehead, and rivers of soju to keep us warm in our warped universe. hidden dangers and mysteries. Whether you're alone in the woods or walking down a city street late at night, beware the urban legends you heard as a child because they may reveal themselves to bear more truth than you imagined. Thank you to Ziggy Schutz and Russell Hemmel for their contributions to this episode and to Kiki Gonluski, Kai Hudson, and Christine Nguyen for their performances. Additional music was by Eric Matias, Kai Engel, and Blair Moon. To learn more about our pieces, artists, and readers, visit our website, monstersoutofthecloset.com. We are eternally grateful to our supporting producers, Lindsay Holt, Lourdes Kaland, Sarah Lopez, Andy Hunter, and Matthew Morrison. And, of course, to our legendary listeners. Our next episode double will be released soon. In the meantime, check out our musings on the macabre at monstersoutofthecloset.tumblr.com and at pod underscore monsters on Twitter. Until next time, Monsters Out. Monsters Out.